the Napoleonic Wars are so ripe for modern costume dramatists. They have all the pride, prejudice, ripped bodices, heaving décolletage, floppy shirts, tall boots, sword fights, cavalry charges, cannon fusillades, haughty manners, skinny mustaches, and mutton dinners that put modern moviegoers' butts in seats. But no one makes Napoleon movies. Every season we suffer through another spate of dreary, not-my-daughter revenge bloodbaths and bald man car chase, hamburger bang-bang IQ reducers, Karen wants to speak to the manager rom-coms that are neither, murder clown forever alone jack fests, and witless, groin-kicking, conspiracy-humping spy movie money flushers brought to you by Zappos, why are there not 50 Napoleonic-era sex comedy dramatainments a year? Well, let me tell you, literature, with a capital L, has got us covered. The golden age of the novel started a hundred years before the golden age of Hollywood, so just as movie makers love World War II, the world of literature loves Napoleon and all he wrought. War and Peace, Les Miserables, The Count of Monte Cristo, pretty much every author from Jane Austen to Dostoevsky had a go at it. And it helped that the romantic poets suffused the whole era with dew-drenched waistcoats and tear-soaked lace, laudanum, morphine, and ambergris, such that dying of a saber wound was every young lover's dream, all the better if you were covered in epaulets. I am practically ready to join the 19th century British Navy as I sit here telling you this. And just as Hollywood keeps dropping bombs down Pearl Harbor's poor funnel stacks nearly 80 years later, so too did the Napoleonic Wars moisten the pen nibs of writers long after the swords were sheathed. No less than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, bored to death with his dumb Sherlock Holmes, tried his hand at the genre and in the end had written Brigadier Etienne Girard into 17 shorts, a play, and a novel. Now Girard is a buffoon, and Conan Doyle clearly delighted in writing him into all kinds of implausible scrapes, mocking French vanity in a way that only an Englishman with a mouthful of sparrow pie and ashes can do. These are the kind of books you might find a dog-eared copy of in the head of your friend's dad's in need of varnish sailboat. Or gradually foxing into dust the color of strong tea on a shelf made of beadboard in a rental house in Wellfleet. Far from the three-hour Napoleonic War epic I'm imagining, the Girard novels are really best suited to be adapted into an episode of Benny Hill. Maybe not surprisingly, given the body sex with milkmaids and slapstick sword fighting, several attempts were made to translate Girard to film, most recently in 1970, a year renowned for its good judgment. Set in Spain, amidst the Peninsular War, where Napoleon's forces fought the British and Spanish in order to prop up his older brother Joseph, whom he'd installed as Emperor of Spain and the ultimate sibling-own of history, Girard is an idiotic young officer who believes himself to be the bravest and most capable soldier in Bonaparte's army, not to mention the Serge Gainsbourg of Portuguese Halofs. Now Napoleon picks him to ferry a decoy message with the full expectation he will fail and be captured. But like Inspector Clouseau or Maxwell Smart, Gerard falls ass backwards into success and gallantry and the whole scheme goes ass over tea kettle or derrière plus de casque du vin or whatever. We need more films about Napoleonic war and sex and costumes and tall boots and this movie has all that but it isn't the template I would follow. It is for you, not for Spain. Today on Friendly Fire, The Adventures of Gerard.
welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast with the hosts that can mix daring with timidity, can be outrageous with an air of humility, and presumptuous with a tone of deference. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. That's one of the lines of the film. One of the best parts, I thought. That line? Yeah. Did you guys have a hard time hearing what people were saying in this film? The sound was not great. I have become a full-time closed caption person oh, no for friendly fire movies. Weird. Yeah, I had to I had to close caption for this one as well. I just uh I I did that thing. I rode the volume knob where I was like it needs to be louder and then all of a sudden it gets really screechy. It's um it was did not have a lot of bass in the sound. It yeah. it, it was kind of uh it was a lot of treble. You know what I liked least about the presentation of this film was that uh, you sort of wonder as you're going through, there had to be a widescreen version of this somewhere. We, we all yes. watched this on Amazon. And then at the very end for the credits, they give you the scope version Spreads out. of the film that you could have been watching the entire time. Come on. Yeah. It's not even pan and scan. It's yeah. just cropped it's just, in. Yeah. And you really feel it. We're losing like half the image. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Because the one thing this movie has going for it, one thing only, is that it's <laughs> is that it's gorgeous. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is an era where they obviously spent a lot of money on this. They've got uh they've got a hundred plus extras all beautifully costumed in Napoleonic era stuff. They've got I mean, the sets are great. They spent a lot of money on explosions. I just feel like Napoleon seems like a real asshole, and I don't know why the Dynamite family would name their second boy after him. (laughs) Of all the military leaders in history, Napoleon is the one that is made the most fun of, right? Yeah, he's really good. He gets, uh, he's characterized by Eli Wallach here as a real... Just, I don't know, he's not, he's, he's not dumb, he's just like slapstick. You get all kinds of depictions of military leadership throughout world history in our films, and yet his is reliably like, what a dope. What a short yeah. fucking dope. Body is too long for his legs. The Germans hate him, the Germans hate the French, the Spanish hate the French, the, the, the English hate the French, and the French hate the French. Was he so loathsome as a personality? No, I don't think so. Why? I think he was. What the, is this? I think he was the greatest general of the modern era, and he just—I mean—he became emperor, which is a bad look. But no, I just think—I think this is like this is all related to the fact that my mom still calls him Bonaparte and spits on the floor. Well, I was going to say, like, if you're a <laughs> if you're a Bonaparte, do you change your name because of the years and years of of Napoleon shaming? No, that's, I feel that's like happened? I feel like if. You know, read the read the record. He uh, he he deserves more respect. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean he uh, he got the roads. You know, <laughs> drive on the right side of the road thing. That the was thing him. You, you see Hitler depicted a lot as a clown. We're starting to see Stalin depicted as a clown. Not at not there haven't been as many films, but but it's starting to happen. You never see Mao. Or Pol Pot depicted as clowns. You don't see a Mao clown. No, we're you don't see still, Mao depicted that much. That's true. I feel like that's true. 
But Napoleon were an extra hundred years or more away from his uh, his depredations. So by the time movies came along, I guess, you know, you never you don't even get Robert E. Lee depicted as a clown. Where's the cool Napoleon movie? The one that that makes him into a hero we'll and, and not a punchline. When he started having himself painted with like dressed in togas, <laughs> that was he opened himself up. And that's the depiction that Eli Wallach gives it gives us here. There are several little set pieces in this movie where it's actually referencing an oil painting of the era. Uh, where where Eli Wallach is clothed as Napoleon in some famous paintings and sort of arrayed, splayed across a couch or whatever, right? Uh, in mockery of some of the heroic art. It feels like Napoleon isn't even the most mocked man on this film. Everyone gets the mockery here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for like a a British satire of the French, there's a lot of self dunking. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the British coming coming to war in skirts, etc. Well, this movie is just one series of pretty ineffectual dunks after another. Like it's yeah. all it's just it's just a chain of dunks. I wondered, like, so part of what's weird about this movie is that Jersey Skolomowski, the guy that directed it, did not speak a word of English and never got a translation of the script, so he had to like direct what? this through an interpreter that can't be true this is one of the things that i read about the film <laughs> wow that's, that's great trivia i mean it makes the film make sense because it is absolutely unintelligible what is meant to be depicted like from the beginning of the movie you're thinking is this a japanese movie that's been dubbed because it makes <laughs> because it makes less sense than what's up tiger Lily. i am the emissary of the emperor one of the things I wanted to interrogate was, to the degree that it even can be, is the idea of British comedy. Like, Monty Python began in 1969. This film was made in 1970. Was the Monty Python sense of humor a reflection of that culture, or did it create British comedy culture? Oh, no. The British comedy culture started way, way back. You know, the Dudley Moore radio hour the the uh, I mean, Monty Python was part of a uh, of a continuum Peter Sellers and you know British British uh, sort of uh, like off ball dada comedy that's, that's what I gathered but this very much seems like a film that could be made by no other people or oh. culture than by those that spawned the Monty Python I saw a ton of Woody Allen or early Woody Allen oh interesting in the kind of um like each little vignette was meant to stand not none of it was furthering any kind of plot. Mm -hmm. The plot is like non-existent really. Um, But each vignette was meant to be funny with a little visual joke or a little bit of somebody slips on a banana peel. And all of that felt kind of like those early Woody Allen movies. And this is right at the beginning of that, right at the beginning of Woody Allen's filmmaking career too. Yeah, it's got the it's got the feel of like a bananas where the it's <laughs> yeah. like we don't really have enough money to do any of this stuff, but we're just going to go ahead and do it. It the only thing that prevents this from being just totally insane as a story and a film is the Claudia Cardinal character. I who, would argue even she does not keep this from being totally I insane. I think she and her character is the only serious part in the film. She's certainly the only consistently yeah. 
like attempting to consistently be real and have a motive. She's grounded. She's the grounding. She's she's grounding everything else around her in some sort of reality. And she's great. She is great. She is Sophia Lorenning around in a way that I really appreciated. She is. She was. I mean, this is the era of eye makeup. Yeah. She's got the raccoon eyes that you don't see again until until 2007. She does not think to take that off when she's attempting to dress up as a man. <laughs> it's been many years since I saw Eight and a Half, but I, I did not recognize her as the same woman. She's great. This was a $3 million budget. She made $500,000 of it. She was the star, film. huh? Worth it. Well, not worth it because the movie was still like the, the movie is a bag of beans. No, man, I, I I will maintain worth it because without her, what is this movie? Still a bag of beans. Way worse, though. Yeah, but how? Unwatchable worse. It was already unwatchable. It's what? watchable, I think, because of her. And also, I think uh, Peter McHenry is totally fun. I loved his performance. He's fun, but there's but what does he have to work with? Like this, the script is like, I, the script really felt like a Mad Lib. He is charming. He is like Ferris. He's, he's more charming than Ferris Bueller. He I is, think he's so handsome. It, it is a very Ferris Bueller performance. The way he keeps turning to the camera and remarking on something he's experiencing. Yeah, there are a lot of good actors, like the like his British counterpart, his fencing. Uh, opponent also extremely handsome and i every time he was on the screen i felt like a brief reprieve <laughs> like well at least this guy knows what he's doing and this competition <laughs> you're talking the, about colonel russell colonel russell yeah. the, the competition between the two seemed like believable or at least you could at least you could get into their into it i wonder if he ever got cast in movies that michael kane turned down he did have he a was michael super caney yeah he was caney you are in a pickle sir you hold your doggy but i think part of the problem was that peter McHenry, as colonel gerard is playing a caricature of a of a like a a dumb callow frenchman but in a british accent he didn't even bother to peter sellers it <laughs> so he's you know he's like flopping around and if he had to just uh, put a little accent on it you know it would have been it would have made it incrementally more sense yeah but he's like oh right oh good old boy i'm here i am the frenchman i would never deign to <laughs> parlay with an englishman <laughs> i spit in your general direction he doesn't even like give us that yeah so so that was a little bit but i mean not even in the top 10 reasons why this film is when you're when you're an english production you can't have the bad guys be speaking in english accents Mm. Right, unless they're Nazis, right? If right. your Nazis speak British accents, that's, I guess, an established film trope. But yeah. French accents are hilarious when you try and do them. How could they have passed up? Well, it's because the director was Polish and didn't speak English. Right. He yeah. didn't know enough to say, like, why don't you do a funny French accent? Probably couldn't tell the difference. You could not How tell the difference. Ah, sacre bleu. Yeah, that's that's the main thing about Polish people is that they can't distinguish between accents. It's not about Polish people, Adam. It's about you. Like you can't dis- distinguish between accents when it's an, a language you don't speak. No, I feel it's Polish people. Fair enough, John. I was I was just being oversensitive for comedy. You know, 
comedy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what? Which is which is uh, kind of my review of this film. You know, comedy. Give it a try sometime. We're really dancing around the different casting choices in this film. I had a hard time. This is going to sound racist. Go ahead. I had a hard time telling the white people apart. I confused Napoleon with uh, with Milfiers. Yeah. The characterizations of Spaniards in this film dates back to a time when Spaniards were an ethnic minority that you could mock. Mm. Uh, now, I think we think of Spaniards as being Europeans who are lumped in with all Europeans as people that Ben hates on behalf of the oppressed. That's uh, that's why <laughs> it's called Lumpia. Lumpia. But at this point in time, we really get the caricature of the like conniving. It's they're either beautiful women or they're um, they're like dark and and sneaky. With Swarthy like nose prostheses. Yeah, super big noses. Yeah. You don't see anti-Spanish racism as much as you maybe once did. I mean, I think that the Spanish dole it out enough that they can probably take a little, right? Oh, see, there you go. Mm. There's the anti-colonialist perspective I was waiting for. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like the, uh, well, they all spoke British, they all spoke with British accents. So it was hard to even tell them. The, the, we're trying to make sense of a plot that that was not yeah. that was never fully elucidated. The, the plot was Napoleon was going to give Gerard a message that he hoped Gerard was such a fool that he, the message would get captured and it was disinformation. But Gerard somehow bumbles through and that creates a problem for Napoleon. But in the end, uh, by complete accident like a crow pecks on the on a bag of uh, bullets or something, and the castle Perfect blows comparison. up. Anyway. But none of that. Yeah, when a crow packs on a or pecks on a bag of bullets. Yeah, the thing about crows is that they always remember a bag of bullets. <laughs> <laughs> they hold that grudge. They're like Adam in that way. But none of that was clearly articulated or depicted. Yeah, you really had to uh, read between the lines to get what was going on at all. And I think part of what muddied that was like one of Gerard's opening moments is deciding to ride by himself into uh, into you know mounted combat with a bunch of British horsemen and kills all of them. So you're like, oh, he is a ca- he's as capable a soldier as he claims to be in these right. voiceovers. And then the rest of the movie, he's like being a total idiot and accidentally winning. I think that that's actually sort of at the heart of this style of book. I think that Gerard in the Conan Doyle books is portrayed as a as a clown, except he actually, his clowniness because he believes it, he actually behaves valorously many times. So you can't just hate him. He's not just, well, Clouseau is the same, right? Clouseau ends up solving the mystery and it's not just by accident. He actually does have insights. What part of Arthur Conan Doyle's mind is he exercising with this? Because like the, the alt is, Sherlock Holmes, who is competent, right? But just as witty and interesting and cutting, like I could, like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes films feel like they could be related to this in that, in that smart alecky, 
could turn to camera in any moment kind of wink yeah. and finger gun sensibility. Like it's interesting that he makes these characters so similar in so many ways, but very different in terms of intelligence, I guess. I feel like there's a, you know, there's that tradition in English writing, the sort of Orwell tradition where there's, there's an awful lot of social criticism baked into books that are also kind of fantastical or comedic, mm -hmm. you know, Conan Doyle, we, we think of him as a sort of an adventure writer, but there's also a lot of, social commentary in what he's in what he's doing and this is a broader version of that but it's he's not just mocking the french he's using the french to mock the english it's a good way of looking at conan doyle as a as maybe a more sophisticated author than than his main character might suggest it's interesting how recognizable all of these traits are given that arthur conan doyle worked in the late 1800s the book was published around then. This film was made in 1970 about Spaniards and British people. And yet these are recognizable tropes and traits about these cultures. Right. Did you read these books? It seemed like at the end of the last episode, you were familiar. I'm, f I guess I'm familiar with a lot more books than I've read. And it's a pro it's <laughs> a pro it's a problem of, of reading book criticism. Like I read a lot more film reviews than I see movies I read a lot more album reviews than I than I listen to albums. I'm a fan of criticism as a as an independent art form. You read a lot more reviews of our show than you participate in them. Yeah, <laughs> certainly more than I write. Uh -huh. But you know, I spend a lot of time reading book reviews, and I think there are a lot of people listening to our show that have no intention of ever listening mm -hmm. to these movies, but they like hearing criticism of them. So it's a I think it's the strongest argument that art criticism is art. So I, I'm familiar with these books, but not interested in them at all. So I'm, your film I, paper is what we're doing is art? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Whoa. End of every show, it says uh, artist-owned, audience-supported. We're the artists. We own this shit. I did read Lonesome Dove. Not that that's relevant here. Do you think this is a better book than it is a movie? I could see myself really enjoying reading these books. Are you kidding me? This is a better gum wrapper than it is a movie. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no movie here, I don't think. What this movie feels like to me is drugs. It feels like everyone's on drugs. And this is early in the days of drugs where people on a movie, uh, making a movie would be influenced by drugs. I wonder if part of that is the crop factor, though, like just the fact that like, you know, that there's a bunch of stuff that you can't see because they cropped this film for the television aspect ratio. God, that is such an interesting observation that that is unintended. Like, is, it just made me feel crazy the entire time. Like, like, oh, we we can see the halves of the two faces on screen that are having a conversation. Why? Just just make it a wider angle. Well, there's that, but also there's that Woody Allen element where you're in a scene where you're nominally in the Napoleonic Wars and then somebody in a dildo costume walks across the set or, you know, or there's like a cow smoking a pipe like there. I didn't understand all the clan robes. 
I, I was watching this on an airplane and I felt very self-conscious that I was watching a movie where like occasionally just like 80 guys in clan robes would wander through a scene. You got Forrest Gumped on that airplane, Ben. I, I was surprised I by clan robes in my airplane experience. You guys are so great. Um, the <laughs> Did you have to move your glassware served to you in a glass up in first class in front of the screen, Ben, to, <laughs> to keep the one person sitting next to you from seeing what you were watching? I was in economy with the people, Adam. Mm. I love how consistent you are. <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> what you are seeing is what is a thing known as a capriote, which is a form of hood uh, that is used in Spain. Friars on a pilgrimage is, is what it says. They're like brotherhoods. They're like religious clans uh, in the old sense, not in the... Ku Klux sense. Spell, spelled with a C and not a K. <laughs> and they... Um, they how, you know, how do you spell Caprio? Does that have a K? No, it does not. <laughs> it's, it's It also has a C. Uh, it's um, it's like it dates back to the Inquisition. It's a, They're the groups of people... They're the groups of, of people that would like flagellate themselves in the streets. Wow. And so now in all the saint... Uh, all the uh, festivals of the saints in Spain, these sort of... Um, Fraternal organizations will take to the streets in very colorful but very pointed clan looking costumes. And it and when you see it in person, it is no less shocking and affecting. How much of your life is just spent paranoid about what that looks like? Like, don't go into my closet. <laughs> well, I think Or like you take it to be dry cleaned. Like, look, I know you think you know what this is this is this, this is happening a, it's in, a social club this is happening in spain they don't care they they don't even see it but you know the hoods are way more way taller and more pointy mm. and in a way like crazy more sinister looking even than the and also they definitely wear like the cross of malta i think it's probably where the clan got a lot of their iconography according to the wikipedia article the anti-catholic second ku klux klan that arose at the beginning of the 20th century may have modeled part of their regalia and insignia on the capriote and san benito as a sardonic nod to the enforcement of restrictions on masquerades a century earlier Wow, the the last time that the clan was ever sardonic. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> Not famously. You know, uh, <laughs> right-wingers just have great senses of humor in general. The right can't meme. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's it's a when you when you spend any time in Spain or interact with Spain culturally, this is one of their this it's kind of like, you know, the way New Orleans has second line and and uh, uh Mardi Gras stuff. There are a lot of festivals in Spain. Every saint has a freaking festival and all these all these different groups come out and they carry statues of Christ and they pin money. It's like the it's basically like the Godfather 2 meets Birth of a Nation meets <laughs> Hold on, I need to put more paper into this printer. <laughs> paper jam, paper jam, paper jam. <laughs> John has been filing his TPS reports. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm going to need you to work on Saturday. <laughs> what the fuck is happening? <laughs> 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Can you enjoy a film that is based purely on its title character's charisma? Like that, that, I feel like that's what this film is asking you to do. Like, can you get with Gerard? But his charisma is thwarted at every turn by the fact that he's not fully characterized. We do not see either his talent or his doofishness. Like, we get one scene of him bawling some girl in a hay loft. Who I thought for a moment was Teresa, and I was like, wow, fast action, Gerard. Yeah. But it was not. It was just another raccoon-eyed, yeah. uh, voluptuous spanish girl she was very voluptuous yeah you see a lot of uh, <laughs> nude back in this movie well and i'm surprised yeah. that we didn't get more nude front given the time and place yeah. but maybe this was just before yeah you see a lot of bush front. in the 70s this was a bush free movie but no I, what i wanted was this cast being employed in an actual movie by a director who spoke their language. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read you the quote from the director. I had never made a film that cost more than $100,000, and to make matters more ludicrous, I didn't speak a word of English, so I could never read the script. It was all relayed to me verbally by translators, but I never read a written translation. I just didn't know how to make such a film, so I decided I could either make a fool of myself or turn it into a joke on Hollywood, and I decided on the latter course. What? Why was why did he get this job? I love this guy. At what in what way is it a joke on Hollywood? Like what's the joke? This guy is my guy for not turning down this job. <laughs> wow. I can't that's crazy. How does anyone not stop him? Yeah, uh just in case anybody's listening, I've never directed a movie with a budget over $100,000 either. There is a budget and a lot of moving parts here. I don't a lot indict, of extras, a lot of costumes. I don't indict Jersey at all for his decision to direct the film. I'm I'm pointing my bony fingers at at the producers. Who thought this would this was going to be okay? That that is the story of this movie that is so much more interesting than this movie. It's obvious why they wanted to make a Girard movie. Mm -hmm. And I think people have tried to do it. And I read somewhere that there's actually a Girard movie in development now starring Steve Carell 
and Ricky Gervais. People love Ricky Gervais. Yeah, as Napoleon. He's Napoleon and Steve Carell is Gerard. You could see it. So, you know, I understand why you want to make the well, movie. Well, Napoleon was a famous atheist, right? I want, and and I understand why the movie got made in the time that it got made. It seems like, yeah, let's it's time for a funny war movie. 1970. People are really laughing about war at this point. Let's take it all the way back. Let's make a sex comedy. You know, it all makes sense. It all comes to the decision that the director doesn't speak English. Why? Why? Who owed who a favor? I mean, this is a crime that would put you in director prison forever. And Jersey went on to direct many, many films. He was in the Avengers as an actor. The TV show? No, the movie. The movie The Avengers, 2012's The Avengers. Marvel's The Avengers? Marvel's The Avengers. Now let's tread carefully, boys. Yeah, he's in it. (laughs) Wow. As what? Magneto? I mean, we know he was uh, Georgie Lushkov. Everyone remembers Georgie Lushkov, right? He really does it all. Writer, actor, director, producer, art director, editor... He's a multi-hyphenate. I feel like you guys enjoyed it somehow. I have to admit that I did. I gave myself over to its insanity. Once I very early stopped trying to figure out the story, which was totally inscrutable to me. Like I actually had to look up the film on the Google to tell me what the story was because I didn't get it just from watching it. It was fun. It was just, uh, it was vignette I felt like as a vignette movie, I wanted more boobs. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, that would have made me even more uncomfortable on my airplane. At a certain point, I actually, I did something I've never done before, which is I reached over and picked up a guitar. <laughs> Just started playing guitar uh, during the film. Not not so loud. It was an electric guitar, so it wasn't loud enough to drown out the dialogue. I could still follow along. But I needed something to do with my hands. Wow. And without boobs, there was not the obvious thing to do with your hands. Right. Right. Mm. Maybe part of what I enjoyed about it was that we watched so many movies that are really hard for this project that it was nice to watch one that really didn't ask anything of me or of itself. And it was like a nice tight 90 minutes, you know, it was like, hey, we'll get through this pretty quick, even though it isn't anything. It could have been 45 minutes. Famously, we do not compare war movies to other war movies, but is there any modern film that feels like this one that would be a suitable comparison? I, you know, in the same way that there are a lot of 1970s movies that are that go to three hours and there it's not three hours because the scope of the story is so broad. It's three hours because there's an hour long wedding scene. Or it's three hours just because everything just moves incredibly slowly because every all the directors were artists. There are also these seventies movies that just feel like um, that feel like magazines or they feel like comic books. You know, they feel like Garfield comic books, where it's just like Garfield pushes Odie <laughs> off the table and in the next one he eats a lasagna and then he sits on John's head. It's raining outside. You know, this just- one he's sending Nermal to Dubai. <laughs> Shucky darn and slop the chickens. Yeah, we've watched, uh, of of the films we've watched from this year, uh, we've watched MASH, Kelly's Heroes, and Tora, Tora, Tora. Those are the only four movies from 1970 we've watched? Yeah. Wow. What a year. 
But what 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 are the comedies we've watched? Like The Mouse That Roared is very similar to this. Yeah, but that was 1959. And that's funnier than this. Like, I think that one of the things that's so wild about this movie is that there are so many things that are like, eh, eh, like, like they're waiting for you to laugh, but there's no actual joke in it. Right, 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 right. They look at you and they go, huh? It's like it doesn't understand that to make somebody laugh, you have to like actually surprise them or do something funny. It may be a thing where some of the references are like British home company jokes or home home country jokes where it's sort of like, oh, by his mustache, we know that he is the he's the foil. But that's not an excuse. What's the deal with man who wears a table? Was that a thing? Well, there you go. No man who wears a table. Was that 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 was never someone's job during this war? That no. sounds like a Borat joke. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It's a Borat there is joke. There's a man the wearing table. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Woody Allen thing, except Woody Allen, it would have been, you know, he would have been dressed as a sperm. I mean, it's just one example of 50 things in this movie where you're like, okay, man wearing a table. And he gets into a, he gets into Am a- Am I con- that gullible? Like I saw it and I was like, well, yeah, of course there were- Men wearing tables during the Napoleonic Wars. But then they had a contest <laughs> over the woman where they put her on a table with a rifle that, oh, that had was, a cannon fuse. That was spin the wagon wheel. Spin the wagon wheel. She spun around, and although there were 358 degrees where that rifle could have ended up not shooting anybody, of course it came to a stop directly pointed at man wearing a table. When I went to high school, I was never invited to spin the wagon wheel. No. I really feel like I missed out. You never wore a table either. No. Nobody wanted to run the risk that it would point at you. <laughs> right. But like Guy un- guy wearing a table, he didn't perform any function as the table either. He was just there. Oh, no, no, no. That's not true. The, uh, the general cracked eggs on his head. Yeah, he the was reason, the egg cracker. The reason he was there. We are likable people. We inspire devotion. This is an era of great costumes, and these characters are wearing great costumes. Yeah, the Hussars look dope. Yeah. If I could wear, if I could dress like that every day, I wouldn't care how hot I was. I mean, in terms of being in Spain. Yeah, that's not a not an easy look to pull off in the Spanish summer. I mean, even in even in a Prussian winter, I would think you'd be overdressed. A fur hat in Spain in the summer, just by itself. But then 10 zillion pearl buttons on the front of your uniform. Gerard submerges his giant fur hat halfway through the film, and it looks great after. It does. Why? You dunk that fur hat into a pond, it's not going to look great ever again. But it looked amazing. If you if you look at the covers of uh, the novels, the Conan Doyle novels, they they basically look like the they look like the movie poster for Conan the uh, the O'Brien. Conan. <laughs> Do you think uh, Peter McInerney was a hunk for his day? For sure, he's a hunk for our day. Great looking dude. I wanted to see them get together. Although he never well, but she seemed to be much more interested in the Englishman. That's the thing. They set up this triangle between uh, Russell and Gerard and Teresa. And Russell just had, I don't know, he just had more. I really like the parts between (laughs) Russell and Gerard. All the fights that start and stop between them. The breaks they need to take. Yeah. The uh, the wonderful sort of like chivalric mockery that was happening there. 
they're they try to agree on a different sort of competition besides sword fighting and neither of them have compatible combat in in the listed ways like one knows how <laughs> to box kick? the other one yeah <laughs> that's great fun yeah yeah that was a real high water mark of this otherwise completely insane movie <laughs> well and the sword fighting was good yeah there was a really yeah. pretty decent sword fighting and great explosions. It was dangerous feeling to see the sword fighting happen on horseback, too. You know, what was really dangerous feeling was when she rides her horse into the bullpen and is like trying to get that map off the bull's horns. Yeah, that was bonkers. That was a thing where the, the where the uh, the framing I thought was really effective because the the camera just kind of. Uh, didn't show her head and shoulders, didn't show her face. And so it was unclear who was such a great horse woman that they could pull this off, you know. Uh, but but even when she jumps that horse into the bullring and out, it seems like you do see her face and it seems like her doing those stunts. It does. But those yeah. are great stunts. Those are $500,000 stunts. There are a lot of people falling off of horses, jumping over walls, and falling great distances. It seems like a production that was fairly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Gerard himself jumps from a cliff and lands into the saddle of a horse. He jumps out of the hayloft and lands in his pants. Yeah. Which was a great stunt. I was like, why have I never tried that? That seems like, instead of doing beer bongs out of the second story window of a fraternity, why aren't frat boys (laughs) jumping out of that window into their pants? Now that would be a frat prank. I might I might like fraternities more if that's what they were doing. Yeah. I mean the 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 war scenes, the explosions and the proximity of the explosions to the actors. Yeah, the French camp uh, on the outskirts of the of the castle that the British are firing from is just it feels terrifyingly dangerous. It kind of reminded me of Gallipoli, the the beachhead that they have in Gallipoli that where there's shells going off all the time and it's like it's almost like people just accept that they're probably going to get shelled and are going about their business without caring much about it. Only in this movie it's played for comedy. <laughs> right, played for comedy. You contrast it with the uh the explosion scenes in Rambo 3, another trash fire movie where the explosions are just happening in trenches that are clearly 50 feet from the nearest actor and and we're given like a foreshortening lens and made to think that anyone's in danger. You know, feel free to shit on Rambo 3 all you want, and I know you will. <laughs> but uh, in terms of rewatchability... Yeah, Rambo 3 is a better comedy than this one. Fair. Wow. Teresa's dad is like a... He's a count, but he's blind. I thought that was her uncle. That was her uncle. That was her uncle. Who lived in the castle that the British were in? Part of why I felt at sea here was that I just didn't really feel like I knew anything about the French invading Spain and the British coming to Spain's aid. Like that seems traditionally aren't the the Spanish and the French natural allies on account of their shared Catholicism. Uh, well, that is, uh, well, and the Spanish and British definitely spent many years, uh, fighting one another in ye olden armada times. Yeah. But the thing about Napoleon, Napoleon was a divisive figure as you may hmm. know, but, but what, what happened in Spain was that Spain became a vassal state of the English or uh, I'm sorry, of Napoleon. He, he installed like a, a government that was a French 
like basically a like a Vichy state. The Bourbons were the were the dynasty in Spain, and he made his brother Napoleon made his brother king of Spain. He he made his he made his cousin the king of Mexico. He just did this. He went around and he was like, "Okay, you're king of Spain now." So his, who was the king of Spain? That's Sting. Okay. Uh, so anyway, the 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 Spanish people revolted against against Napoleon, but he actually his Napoleon's brother controlled the government of Spain. So the so the Spanish rebelled, and the British, of course, trying to fight France on every field aided the Spanish rebellion. It, it was, it, they, these were complicated times, right? Because the British and French were fighting against one another in America too. But this is also concurrent with the war of 1812, which was the British fighting the United States. And the United States was, boy, it was a really, it was a weird time. Lots to talk about when I teach my when I teach my friendly fire history class. Yeah, we're selling tickets now. Though we be on the far side of the Pyrenees, this horse is England. <laughs> yes. Contextual laughter for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was maybe one of the more intellig- intelligible aspects of this film uh, that our heroine felt equally. Uh, opposed to both the French and English because yeah, she was a she Spanish didn't like either of them. Right. She was a Spanish nationalist or at least, you know, a loyalist to the Bourbons. I don't understand what's bad about nationalism then. Well, I know, right? But it <laughs> but it's it's uh it's she was a royalist loyalist. Oh god. Yeah. So <laughs> even worse because she's a countess, yeah. right? Right. That's part of what that's part of why she can be sexy. Is That's that, my favorite Lord song. Uh, we can be royalist loyalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought royalist loyalist was the guitar player in the Lemonheads. I keep it up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the hacky sack hit the ground. <laughs> uh, this I I would rather watch this than one of those like Norwegian productions of of uh, some sort of Valhalla. Every time you're going <laughs> to wish you were watching one of these when one of those comes up yeah. again. Wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, we don't compare movies and, and, and we won't, but just before we get to like the rating portion, this or Red Bad? Yeah, this every time. This every time? Really? Yeah. Well, I don't know, man. This movie was really, it's so weird for me to watch a movie from 1970 that is this fun and to be this bored. I mean, amazing that a movie that had as many clan hoods as this felt less white supremacist than Red Bad. It's true, but Red Bad had some, I don't know, fights, at least. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I have a feeling I know what your ratings are going to be for this one, but we need a rating system first as constructed by me. And for The Adventures of Gerard, kind of wanted it to be bathtubs. It's not going to be bathtubs. You get a lot of people bathing in this movie. There's some bathing. Kind of wanted it to be a tabletop, like wearable tabletop guy. 
Not going to be that either. I needed something more aligned with how this film felt. And to me, that scene early on where Napoleon checks out uh, Girard's medals and one by one takes them off of his baldric or whatever and like throws them into the sand and then sort of taunts him with this Legion of Honor star, should he be able to succeed in his mission? It feels like that scene is representative of what a viewer has to go through. Like, forget all of your past war film experience. Forget all of them. Uh, I'm going to dangle this Legion of Honor star in front of you. Should you make it through to the end of Adventures of Gerard? And so it will be from one to five Legion of Honor stars. I just thought it was unfair that the Wookiee didn't get a Legion of Honor star at the end. Yeah, that is unfair. Well, should they make a ninth sequel to this film? Maybe maybe they can correct that. (laughs) A lot of ways to question the choices made in this film. A lot of reasons to dislike it. But for me, I was amused by how much it felt like a Sherlock Holmes film. And that was neat. Hmm. It is almost totally incoherent, but the thing that kept me interested and not strumming a guitar during was that Peter McInerney performance. I was charmed by him throughout. It made me want to see other films of his. And he is still a working actor at 80-something years old. Good for him. Claudia Cardinale's the same way, still doing the thing. I think that's great. I think the both of them are great together. I wish there were more scenes of them together. But this film is a little too much like Mr. Bean for me to like really (laughs) vibe with. It's just too stupid. And for that reason, like it's the ways that I like it are outweighed utterly by the many reasons uh, to not dig it. I'm glad I saw it the one time. I don't think it has much rewatchability. I mean, I don't know the answer to this question. Were there other Girard films made? There were many books. There were other films. There was one that was made. There were two, I think, that were made during the silent film era. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm not over this character is what I'm trying to say. Like, This film has me interested in what this whole world is. You're ready for Steve Carell, aren't you? I think think I'd be up for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say if you're interested in... In this character, maybe go get the book, maybe skip the movie and watch a different movie or the uh, Steve Carell version to come. I think for that reason, I'm just going to give it two Legion of Honor stars. Glad I saw it. Don't need to see it again. Wouldn't recommend it, but some stuff to like if you're if you're watching it. I will probably not remember anything about this movie in a week's time when Rob edits this audio and sends it to us to... QA before we release the episode. I won't remember having this conversation. Uh, I just, I just feel like this, this movie was a waste of time. I should have just read the Wikipedia article about the Napoleonic Wars and uh, <laughs> called it a day. Wow. Uh, one Legion of Honor star. I, I feel like this movie would be great if you turned the sound off and played it in the background <laughs> at a party. Because yeah. if, if you were having a party and this movie was on and you and say, say, for instance, you're at a party, it's a fun social party, but you're feeling weird because you're a little baked. So it's like if you're invited to a party and you show up with Adventures of Gerard, doesn't really matter. No, uh, no, <laughs> no. If you if you're baked at a party 
and are feeling weird and Adventures of Gerard is on with the sound off, you could go sit on the couch and plausibly be watching it where you're actually just like not making it. You're not cutting it at the party, but you're baked and you're watching this movie and it would make it would be like this is a good movie to not freak out at. Right. You'd be grateful that this movie was on. Yeah. If you were at a party and because with the sound off, it's going to make as much or more sense than with it on. Mm hmm. And you can have something to do at the party. Also, if you're at the party and you are succeeding, you're like talking to somebody interesting and it's a, and you're having fun and you looked over at this movie going, it would make the party seem even more fun. Right. Because every time you looked over, it's not like, it's not like Zulu where you look over and it's a, <laughs> and war scenes where people are actually getting hurt. It's like, yeah. it's like a fancy dress party with some, explosions the bloodiest thing is when he gets a little cut on his eyebrow because he wants to have scars to remember the war by right so those are the redeeming qualities of this film it's a great turn the sound off and have it going in the background of your watch it for health reasons mental health reasons (laughs) that's what you're saying (laughs) get a little baked turn the sound off and put it on Mm. while you while you make dinner uh, but otherwise, it's a one lesion, lesion d'amour. Wow, star, <laughs> lesion d'amour. I feel like it's one thing to give a a low score; it's another to say that it was a waste of time. Do you also feel like uh, it was a waste of your time? I mean, I was drumming my fingers on my guitar rather than because my mind needed one more thing. Mm. I mean, it needed one more thing and I couldn't play solitaire because I had to, my eyes had to be occupied. Yeah. Yeah, because half the characters are speaking French. You got to read those subtitles. It was a failure. Wow. Well, I mean, tough but fair, I guess, uh, was your choice of guy in keeping with that sensibility. Who's your guy, John? I mean, my guy has to be Jersey Skolomowski, the director of the film. (laughs) Because I should have gone first. What a hero. Yeah. I mean, what a hero to have just thrown the frog at the wall like he did. Not all heroes <laughs> speak the language. <laughs> because he wrote, he, he clearly in, in subsequent interviews said this was nuts. He didn't lobby for it. Yeah. Clearly he got this as some kind of work release or, or like <laughs> he, he came to, he came to England seeking political asylum and they were like, great, here's, here's what Bring you have to need do you to do something first. <laughs> yeah, that's $3 right. million dollar budget and a bunch of actors go. Anyway, he's my guy. I don't think there's another guy in the film. My guy is a uh, Jersey Skolomowski. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> having having taken one or two directing jobs where I was in over my head, um, you know, lack of game, respect, lack of game. Wait a minute. You know, I just I just realized looking at the looking at the Wikipedia entry, the producer of this film, also Polish, Gene Gutowski, who who produced a lot of Roman Polanski movies, to just to give Ben something to think about. Uh- <laughs> So somehow I feel like Gene Gutowski was behind the hiring of Jerry Skolomowski. Gene Gutowski is uh, complicit in all of this. Yeah. Gene Gutowski was like, well, I like this. I like this guy. I mean, he hasn't raped a child, but 
I feel like he could direct. And wait a minute. The cinematographer is Witold Sobichinski. A lot of good Polish names in this. Something's going on here. Something's not right. Hmm. Well, a director has to be able to communicate with their DP, so I understand right. they must be Polish. Right. They were over there trying to screw in a light bulb. <laughs> yeah, let's make it unanimous. Uh, my guy's going to be Jersey also. That story's too good to uh, too good to forget. Yeah. Sorry to anybody that watched this ahead of the podcast uh, <laughs> this week. <laughs> Couldn't warn you off. Yeah. At least it wasn't a huge investment. Nice, tight 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. What do we have coming up on the next episode, though? Maybe we'll get another comedy. Here we go. Rolling the 120-sided die. Number 24. 24. This week's role landed on a 1961 film directed by J. Lee Thompson, starring David Niven, Anthony Quinn, and Gregory Peck. It's the Guns of Navarone. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by listeners like you. And if you'd like to make sure that the show continues, please head on over to MaximumFun.org join. Once you pledge your support, you'll receive all of the Maximum Fun bonus audio content as well as our monthly Pork Chop episode. If you'd like to talk about this episode on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire or join one of our online discussion groups on a platform like Facebook. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Friendly Fire. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.